This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Paraswap. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching another awesome episode of Untold Stories, where twice a week together, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, builders, architects, brilliant minds, those who are in the basement, those who are in the corner office, those who are and everyone in between to truly understand how this movement came to be, where we are right now, what technologies we're actually building and how that's going to change the future, to understand like where we're going. And over the last few years, we've been able to successfully kind of get us all ready for the transitions that the world is kind of going through right now. And I'm really proud of that. And, and our guest today, Jonathan Victor, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. You are leading the Web3 world, the NFT world for Protocol Labs and Filecoin. Thanks for coming on Untold Stories today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. It's, it, we were just talking earlier. It's, it, you were down here in, in Florida for a few weeks ago for the, for the big Art Basel uh, event. It's, it's kind of crazy how over the last year or so, uh, two years really, Crypto, Bitcoin, this whole industry is completely taken over like that whole that whole art movement that's been going on for decades. It's complete. What was it like down there? It was crazy. I think I mean, it was interesting. There was like four or five different conferences that were all sort of going on in parallel, in addition to, I think, the more traditional art Basel stuff. But I think what's interesting is you're seeing basically both technologists who sort of took over parts of Miami, but also like traditional artists who are all sort of like feeling out uh, their space and how do NFTs sort of intersect. I think there's like, it's interesting if you sort of look at how people are sort of moving into the space. I think you have different levels of adoption pending where they sort of were prior in the art world. I went to actually a separate conference earlier in the year in Prague, where it was really just trying to bring together traditional institutions, other artists and like Web3 folks. And it's interesting. I think for a lot of folks, it's just so many paradigm shifting things sort of happening at once. They're just trying to like wrap their brains around it. But I think the moment they do, then they sort of recognize like, there's a new opportunity here where I can more directly connect with the people who I'm trying to create for. Uh, I can more directly express the things I want to. There's like more direct ownership as well. So I think it's like, it's one of those things where slowly people are getting crypto built. Uh, but yeah. over time, I think we'll see more and more of it accelerate. Most people uh, nowadays, the NFT conversation is 99 taken up by like art, music, things where it's like content creation. Um, things that are beautiful, things that have like, whether it's sentimental, collectible value, it's kind of largely that world. And because of that, uh, those who are trying to look at it and understand it, like I was just traveling around Los Angeles and I kind of get the same question. It's like, I don't understand it. And I kind of try to get into that looking at NFTs through the art world is probably the single most expensive mistake that you can ever, mis you can ever make because automatically you'll say, I don't understand it and try to move on. But kind of how do you bring people to a higher level of looking at where NFTs are actually going and kind of what they are? The way I talk about NFTs is that they're like digital objects. I mean, they're like digital representations of things. And I think like art is one of these things where it's like very easy for people to see it. Like you look at it like a picture and that's something that you intuitively can be like, okay, I like move it around like the crypto stuff that's in my wallet. I sort of like understand what's going on. But I think we're sort of seeing the beginning of this. Uh, I mean, beginning, we're probably in like the first or second inning of this with like gaming, 
where like NFTs also play a role there. It's like, here are these digital objects that we can sort of own, we can trade, we can have secondary markets for. I think like the moment people first sort of grok the art side and then you introduce the gaming side, they're like, oh wait, this can be used in like a thousand different directions as well. And so I always like to just bring up other things where it's like, if you start reframing everything, it's like, these are digital bearer objects. And like, all it requires is a wallet. And then you have all of these public rails to trade around these objects. You can start looking at all of these other yeah. things that just exist in the world that could be NFTs, whether it's tickets, whether it's your vaccine cards, there's just like all of these digital objects where it's like, here's public infrastructure that anyone can hook into. You can have information about who created this thing. And then you can set a bunch of rules around it. And I think like, even at the beginning of this pandemic, there was yeah. this whole talk about like, oh, Google and Apple will create like specific apps that will help us show our vaccine cards or whatever else. Like that could have been a smart contract that came from like state of New York, state of Florida, whatever. It's signed by like whoever is the physician that actually like did the injection. And like that just sits in a wallet and you can choose to reveal it and do whatever. But, like that could have been done in like an afternoon <laughs> like versus I know. All this I feel like the vaccine world would be very different now and the medical world in the future if there was a simple app, which again can be built right now, but it's, you know, it's the large governments are the ones that are kind of using it. But if these vaccine cards could be done on a blockchain where you choose who has that data, what data, because I mean, I've gotten dozens of vaccines. I went to South Africa a few years ago. You have to get like 16 shots over the course of like three days. My arm hurts just thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's not even just objects. Like one of the things that I think is so interesting is you look at like even what people are doing with NFTs, all of these tools that are sort of being built around like fractionalization, also like crowdfunding. And if you start squinting at it, another way of thinking about NFTs are you have sort of these like illiquid objects that people are creating different tools, whether it's for crowdfunding or liquidity or whatever. And so then if you start thinking about like, what are other things that are sort of a liquid that you could use all of these financial primitives and tools around, it also can expand in like different directions as well. Like you could think of like the bond market, every bond is sort of like an NFT where it's like, who is the company that issued this thing? What's their credit rating? Like there's a bunch of properties that could be there. And you can imagine creating liquidity by just like fractionalizing it. And then if you're thinking about like who gets the coupon payment, well, today that would be really hard to do in like a normal traditional financial context. But with it, like with an NFT that's like fractionalized, you could easily trace the ownership of like, okay, who owns what fractions? Like if you're issuing a coupon payment, like who are the addresses that should get the thing? There's like a bunch of downstream contexts where this all can sort of yeah, like because be reapplied and re-engineered. But yeah. Before NFTs on those rails, you couldn't, the value itself, the rails were just used to send data or messaging, excuse me, across. Whereas now the NFT or that digital object is the value in and of itself. It's like digital bearer bonds. Like back in the day, pre-internet, um, when you'd start a company or buy or, 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 or buy shares in a company or even go to, to Europe and uh, buy a piece of a bank or do all these different type of business arrangements a lot of the times and it still isn't like places like belize uh when you start a company you can start like a numbered no-name company where it's just whoever's holding that certificate is a percent owner in that company now that's largely went away during the crazy rapid rise of like high frequency trading and the internet and moving stock markets over to 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 all digital and and removing uh trading floors and kind of like the migration over which was a very important thing but at the same time, we lost a lot of the ability to have value there on that having that like battery for 
uh, a digital object that can be moved around from person to person. And doing it now on a digital system where all the ownership and providence is tracked and it's it's really a cool thing. Yeah, and I think like the more people sort of realize this, like I think Uniswap is such a fascinating example where like there are days where they're doing like 2 billion in volume. And like sort of the magic of Uniswap is that you have this like sort of like long tail effect where you can basically, anyone can sort of like list their assets, anyone can market make for those like two assets. And as a result of like having all of these different pools, you can basically create like an end hop thing that gets you from like one asset to whatever other asset that you want, if you're willing to go through as many pools. And like, if you contrast that with something like Coinbase, Coinbase is a great service too, but like, because they have to go through this process of like vetting individual things, there's like a trade-off that's sort of made between like, if you were manually doing all of this work yourself, like Coinbase has some amount of people who are working on a team that's doing some sort of processing. And so it like takes some time to actually do the listing process. And I think the same is sort of true with like, and all of this just comes back to like, what are the rails? And so when we think about NFTs, it's sort of like, here's a standard that anyone can conform to that will like rep- be represented as like this digital object. Then yeah, like you have all this infrastructure that's already in place. As more and more people have wallets, people will like instantly be able to be compatible with like the digital object that you've created. And that's sort of like the magic. You can do stuff with it, borrow against it, you can do dividends with it. You can this object now it becomes like like imagine if all of your assets, you can you look at a spreadsheet of all of your assets. Imagine if they were all had digital representations that you can do reshuffling and rebalancing and then automated rebalancing and you can have 30% real estate, 30% crypto, 30% in 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 cash flowing businesses. Imagine if those cash flowing businesses can be tokenized and you can borrow against it to buy for the properties. I mean, that's where we're going. It's 100%. It's not even a question. It's going to be 10 years from now, everything will be represented as an NFT and tokenized. Like I say, not looking into this, not reading about this, not understanding it is is literally a very, very expensive mistake. So we're not just talking hocus pocus. We're talking about the actual technologies of today to build out what the future Web3 as we know it. And that metaverse, it's all going to be built on this Web3. And I always tell people, like, if you're looking at the technologies of today to solve the Web3 problems, you're wrong. We're rebuilding everything. And so file storage and data storage and basically how information and data, which is very large, is not only stored, but also accessed and referenced on what we know as the internet. And I'm quoting, it has to be completely rebuilt, redone. And the 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 technology that's furthermost along that you guys have like one EIB of storage already well, that you had in the first month in, in August 2020 is IPFS. And you guys at Protocol Labs have been working on this. IPFS has become now like a, a, a known term, a mainstay in the the uh, data storage world, why is it so fundamentally different than how we look at like storage today, whether it be cloud storage or like on my computer and things like that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So maybe to sort of like clarify a little bit. So IPFS itself is a protocol that allow it stands for the interplanetary file system. And the way to think about this is it's actually like a suite of protocols that all like work together. And IPFS gives you this magic ability to reference data, not by where data lives, but by what data is. And so to sort of like contrast that with the web as it is today, normally when we think about like referencing data, we use like HTTP URLs. Like if we're going to google.com, like you put that into your browser, your browser is gonna like bounce you to someone's server. It's a Google server. 
whatever is at like Google server will be served back to you. And that's the page that you see. And like, if we were to like make an analogy with like reading a book, let's say we're talking about like To Kill a Mockingbird, the equivalent of how the web works today would be like, if we're talking about this book, you're interested in reading it. And I tell you, you should fly to London, like in London, in the center of town, there's a library in the library, go to like the bookshelf on the right, three books over on the second shelf is the book that you want. And of course, many things could go wrong. Like you could get banned from going to London because of COVID restrictions, like library could burn down, different book could be there and you would have no idea. Like these are all things that happen with the web today. The, the magic trick that sort of IPFS does is it recognizes like, what's if instead of telling you where to go for a book, if I just gave you a very specific description and you could ask anyone and say like, hey, uh, like, so if I told you, okay, To Kill a Mockingbird, it's written by Harper Lee, here's the ISBN number, here's like the page count, the cover art, here's a very specific description. You could ask me, you could ask anyone in your audience, you could ask your neighbor, you could ask anyone for a copy of the book, and the closest copy of the book can be given back to you. And so like the sort of magic thing about that is it means that so long as you can ask someone for the data and like there's a pathway, like if you ask me and I don't have it, I could ask my neighbors. And if they have it, I could hand it back to you. So long as you have this pathway of getting to the data, the data can come back to you. Um, so that's like what I, or IPFS is doing. And then many of the protocols under there are solving different problems like libp2p is really giving you a bunch of flexibility of how you ask for the data, whether like you ask me over the phone and then I like, use smoke signals to ask, I yeah. don't know, someone in another part of the country. <laughs> like, so it tries to modularize these solutions, um, but sort of the magic part and how it connects back is especially when we think about like blockchains and like NFTs and things like that, like blockchains themselves can't store a lot of data inside of them. I, sometimes that's like missed by people. The yeah. Ethereum like processing power is something like a Raspberry Pi. And so it's really expensive. If you wanna have something that is like a video or if you wanna have something like an AR VR asset for like the metaverse, like you can't store that directly on chain and have that actually be like scalable. Yeah. So instead what people will do is they'll use something like IPFS to say, hey, you can just ask this like magic internet thing. And so like, here's the data I'm looking for. And so long as that data can get back to you, then like everything sort of works. Um, so what we've been building with IPFS is first order, how do we do this like storage and retrieval based on like the fingerprint of your data. And then with Filecoin, which is sort of a complementary protocol, we're solving for the, how do I make sure someone has a copy of your book? How do I make sure that this thing exists in the world? And there's a lot of really cool like cryptography, economic stuff that we're doing to like make that happen. Um, what, but they what sort are of, the like, economics of it? I'm, I'm just more curious about like yesterday on the show, I talked about market participants and how in the 2D world or the web two world, it was always like, Two, you know, consumer business. And now you have this three-dimensional, more multi-dimensional system in the Web3 where it's like you have consumer business, stakeholder, governance, user, developer, you know, someone who just – you have all these different people and then you guys being such a distributed company too. So you have like multifaceted, multi-dimensional whole thing. I'm curious. You know, I only studied economics from like a – it's in a 2D perspective. I almost feel like the economics that I know is outdated. I mean, I think the cool thing about this in all of these protocols is you're like an easy way to sort of think about them is sort of like islands that are all building their own economies. And like in our case, like storage is sort of like the fundamental thing inside of the Filecoin economy yeah. where like Filecoin, the protocol is just creating this open storage market between clients and providers so anyone who has like, who can meet the requirements of the Filecoin protocol, they can offer storage capacity to the network. 
you as a client can go to the Filecoin network and say, hey, I would like to store some data. There's like an open market of participants, which allows for like just bidding, uh, like you'll get the lowest price because you're working with like an open market sort of dynamic. And the cool thing here is Filecoin, the protocol is actually just guaranteeing some quality of service. So like the way to think about like the Filecoin blockchain right now, what it really is doing is it like cryptographically is enforcing like some minimum service where specifically for Filecoin, there's two proofs that are used. The first is to make sure that when someone's saying they're storing your data, that they're actually storing your data. They're not just saying like, yes, I'm storing your data, taking your money, and then just like dropping off with it. Like so the first is to make sure that they actually have your data. And the second is to make sure that they're storing it over time. And so with the combination of these two things, anyone can offer services to this network and you can get like verifiable proof. You don't have to trust anyone. Literally it's math that's like showing up that's saying like, this person has your data, your data is still okay, it's all fine. Um, and with that, then you can like really enable sort of like an Airbnb of storage where because everyone is needing some minimum quality that's enforced through math, anyone can offer storage capacity to the network, which gives you these like massive scaling advantages. So for us, like if you think about, I don't know if your listeners are going to be familiar, but like uh, the sizing of when people talk about different types of data sizes, there's like gigabytes, like gibibytes is another format, but like gigabytes, terabytes, petabytes, exabytes. Like Filecoin currently has something like 14 closing on 15 exabytes of storage, which is about like for context CERN, which is like the large particle physics lab in Europe, which is like an intergovernmental effort. They have about a hundred pebibytes of capacity. So we are like order of magnitude ish. Like, yeah, wow. we're, we're, we're larger than that. Let's look at so like what about like other cloud storage type of companies, uh, Dropbox, Box, uh, uh, Microsoft, things like that. Yeah, I'm fairly certain uh, someone will have to fact check me. I think 2018 Google is about the size of capacity that we are at today. Wow, that is unbelievable. Yeah, well, and unbelievable. I think we're going to keep... Congratulations. Look at that yeah, growth. Yeah, we'll see. I think that this is like, uh, this is sort of the magic of like, how do you build the right crypto and economic incentives? Um, and so if you listen to some of Juan, who's like the founder of Filecoin, Protocol Labs, ITFS, some of his early talks, like the real genesis and sort of like one of the original insights was like looking just at a like a chart of Bitcoin's hashing power over time, where it's like you just see this like massive hockey stick of like all this like compute that was just like going into this process of like providing security to the network. And so the big question was, is there a form of proof that we can use in a productive way where it's not just saying like, oh, we're going to consume energy for the sake of consuming energy because it like provides security. But can we actually direct it also to do something productive in like in whatever like process it's being used? And in our case, proof of space time, proof of replication is both adding capacity to the network for other people to be able to use for storage, but also proof of the storage itself. Uh, so it's like proof of use for work is a way of thinking about it. Sorry to interrupt your regularly scheduled programming, but I wanted to tell you guys that if you're using PancakeSwap, Uniswap, DYDX, SushiSwap, you're doing it wrong. You need to be using PowerSwap because PowerSwap is a user interface, a decentralized smart contract platform that sits on top of all of these. And when you go to PowerSwap or untoldstories.link forward slash PowerSwap, because they're refunding your gas, if you go there, then you'll be able to, on top of Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, and Polygon, look for the best prices for your tokens and swap and do everything in one predefined transaction 
on chain instead of having to do the approval to this token to that token to do all these different things paraswap does it all for you it's decentralized they just released their api version 5 that you can see everything it's all open source very cool stuff untoldstories.link forward slash paraswap if you're using any of the other decentralized protocols you're doing it wrong because you need to be using the routing beautiful paraswap routing system and it's fully decentralized too it's gorgeous. I'll talk to you guys soon. Is there a difference between like how short-term storage and long-term storage is incentivized? I'm just thinking that long-term storage, maybe bigger files that don't need to be referenced as much like a film, for example, like I'll give you an example, like, uh, here's a great example of why Filecoin, where Filecoin and protocol labs and IPFS would be great. You have, uh, in the film industry business, the, the actual films that are being shown at movie theaters, uh, Netflix, Amazon, the actual size of the final export is tremendous. But you need to be able to play that, you know, in real time streaming, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in the best quality possible in someone's computer screen or their cell phone. Uh, here is, and, and literally it's still being done with portable hard drives today. People are flying around the country with portable hard drives because the current system is not built out for for having uh, such good quality because we're building out the technology to build out camera equipment and and lenses is is fat moving faster than than the internet can handle. So here's like a perfect example of like why we need this today and 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 where it's going. Hundred percent, yeah. Like so, we're still very early in the days of the Filecoin network. I think the way that we sort of think about this is really, I think you're really describing like what we want to get to, where it's like both you're going to have some things that are very hot. So you could think of those as like retrieval layer type things where there's a whole retrieval market that's currently being built. Where like, how do I get my like CDN style? I want to cache this data. I just have yeah. it be highly available as well as super cold storage where it's like, hey, here's the thing that's very infrequently accessed. And I want to make sure that this just stays around and you have everything in between. And I think sort of the interesting thing here is we really want to build a protocol that can seamlessly do both ends of that spectrum. And so if you are someone who like my dream of like, what do I want to get to at the end is like, if Netflix is distributing content, I want them to have a bunch of CIDs where they're like Filecoin network, instead of having like this massive infrastructure of like things that they maintain yeah. or they pay Amazon to maintain, it's just like, here's a smart contract, we dump some funds into you. And it like auto rebalances and does all of the hard work behind the scenes. In order to make that happen, there's like many, many different things that I have to like get to. But I think that's like the distributed feature, uh, including potentially saying like, I have a spare Xbox, like could my spare Xbox in the future also be a retrieval node? And could I get paid for like hosting portions of Netflix's content? Like, yeah. You potentially could. I mean, the opportunities are endless here. We're talking about removing the ability from for anyone to censor any type of data in the world. And, and I think that's a very, very important thing. Uh, it's interesting too, because we talked a sec second ago about economics and distribution and you mentioned something. Um, and I'm just curious to know, like how you've, you guys have incentivized the network in such a great way because so I'm, I'm a GP of a fund here in Tampa and we were doing due diligence for uh, a potential company that we're going to invest in. And if there are any Florida companies that are listening, uh, we do seed investing. So shoot me an email, but, um, I was asking about their distribution and they said, well, we're looking to do the gold standard of distribution like Filecoin did. And I was like, what did Filecoin do? I had to go in and like, and then here we're talking. So I'm actually curious to know, 
like why that and i looked at the charts and everything and 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 distribution of tokens and how mainnets are launched and things like that is so tumultuous and so crazy i'm curious how you guys were able to kind of uh, uh forecast how things would work out i think i mean so i think the entire crypto economy has sort of like uh evolved as well so i think like we were fortunate True. that uh we like had I think uh, a fair amount of planning behind this, and then also just like taking very conservative approaches. I think like to some degree this is, and like finally, I don't know if listeners would even know, like Protocol Labs uh, pioneered SAFT. So this is like uh, Protocol Labs, the company is US based, but like how do we create like legal frameworks that we oh, can Oh, you like... guys were the first ones to use the SAFT yeah. thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Simple really agreement for to... future tokens. Exactly. So it's modeled after safes from Y Combinator, but really just trying to like, help try to like move the industry forward on like what does it mean to be both compliant but also like enable these projects to sort of get off the ground um but yeah like for us i think there's like a mixture of things i think there is some amount of like what are the right ways that you can sort of set things up to be like moving in the good and like in a good direction in the future i think that requires being thoughtful about like what incentives are you giving different actors in the space how do you make sure that you're leaving space for like the different types of growth that you may want in oh, the future, yeah. setting up other institutions that can also help steward the ecosystem outside of just us. And so I think really thinking through all of those different, and we are not like alone in this. It's not like we came up with this in a vacuum. I think you could look at things like the Ethereum Foundation and sort of how Ethereum sort of like set a lot of things in motion there too. And so for us, it was like a mixture of many things sort of coming together. Um, but I think it's also interesting, like when we think about our role and like, like Protocol Labs itself, is like decentralizing and we're slowly doing the thing where like teams are spinning out to be their own ecosystem teams. Uh, for Protocol Labs itself, we're now really actually moving towards something closer of like a wide combinator model where like there will be actually like a giant pool of funds that are used to help support different teams building our ecosystem. Yeah. Also shout out if there's uh, people who are looking to build, you should reach out to us. Um, but reach out to not only like teams that are building in our ecosystem, but also how do we fund the public goods in our ecosystem? When you think about like, so IPFS is like this peer-to-peer -peer protocol. Many developers want to be able to talk to IPFS but not run their own nodes. And so we Protocol yeah. Labs today runs some public gateways as like a service just because it makes it easier for developers. And there's this question of like, how do we fund public goods? And this is like not a unique question to like Protocol Labs, the IPFS and Falcon ecosystem. This is also something that like the Ethereum ecosystem thinks about a lot too. And for us, like one of the observations is like, these are actually critically important for not only just like the adoption and growth of, of IPFS and Falcoin, but also the success for like other teams building in the ecosystem. So how do we create the right incentive structures that can also make sure that public goods are funded? Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of this is like setting the stage. So when we think about, to go back to the original point of like, how does one do token funding? How does one think about the responsibilities of different actors in the ecosystem? How does one think about the right way of deploying these resources and taking a super, super long-term view? Um, I, I think like all of those are sort of like the considerations that we've sort of had. And it's it's uh, uh, having that long-term view was very important because a lot of times uh, projects will look at like the very, very short-term view, but you guys were like, we're building out this massive new technology that's going to be adopted and it's going to take maybe a decade or two to build out for it. So we have to plan for it. Um, and you guys have like partnered with a lot of different foundations and different type of, uh, you know, some would even say your competitors to do some really cool thing. I was doing some research and I saw uh, I'm a big fan of randomness and trying to understand randomness in the universe. 
I'm a student of physics. I try to be. I'm just curious, more curious person. Uh, so you guys launched the League of Entropy with uh, Cloudflare and the Ethereum Foundation. What is that, and why is like having a a, a, a like a publicly verifiable randomness beacon? Why is that important? Yeah, I think like having sources of randomness is actually quite tricky. Like, I mean, randomness—it's almost impossible. Yeah, and so like I think one of the really interesting things is if you have a bunch of different sources together that are all sort of being merged, you can create like this publicly verifiable, like here is a source of randomness that we know is like not biasable and you can bring more people in to contribute to like also help make that more and more like verifiably trustable that like, hey, here is more randomness sources that are being combined in. And so actually this is critical for, and I will not be able to describe it properly, but like this is actually critical for part of like Filecoin's protocols, but this is used, I know people in like different cryptographic constructs as well also need randomness sources. And so this can be quite helpful for enabling that. Um, and like, it gives you this way of also checkpointing in time where it's like, I can't fake like new randomness. So like, when we think about like, how do we build, uh, actually a very specific example of this, like one of the things that can happen is when people try to do on chain randomness inside of like Ethereum or something else, usually they'll actually use like whatever the Merkle hash of like the previous block. But then you sort of are getting into like a bidding war of like, here is randomness that's coming from like a thing that everyone else is observing on chain from like an MEV side. Um, but yeah, for us, actually, this is like a quite crucial part of like our proofs, but like distributed randomness actually shows up in many different places um, where, yeah, having something that like anyone around the world can tap into and use, but is also known to not be like compromised and people can sort of like use and trust. We need randomness, especially uh, in the digital world, because there's a lot that we don't want to predict the outcome. It needs to be random when you're talking about like attributes of an NFT or you're talking about uh, proving a timestamp or sending a transaction on most blockchains requires some sort of like randomness or a nonce or something like that. Uh, it's very important because you don't want uh, uh, the future to be able to predict what you are trying to do right now. So you need to introduce some sort of randomness there. So that's like a big piece of the puzzle. Another big piece of the puzzle is something called zero knowledge proofs. And a lot of people hear that term a lot, don't really understand what zero knowledge proofs are, don't really know that in like the early Bitcoin days, we were sending unconfirmed transactions to each other without needing to wait for confirmations. Uh, We have block times, which can be a few seconds to a few minutes, sometimes even an hour. What are these like zero knowledge proofs? Is it like, am I wrong in understanding it's like the ability to have data without requiring confirmations? So it's a way of basically having something that is like, you can get a proof that can like allow you to like believe something is true without having to like do like without having to have information. Yeah. So like one analogy that's been given to me that I use is like, imagine we were talking about like, I want to prove to you that I know like the difference between the colors red and green and you're colorblind. So like, I can't reveal to you like these colors directly, but like, I want to prove to you that this is a true statement that I know. And so like, we could iteratively go through and I could show you a bunch of objects or like, you could show me a bunch of objects and I could say like red, green. And that's sort of like the interactive, like you ask me a question, I give you a response. And over some period of time, if like, let's assume there's some magic sensor that tells you if I'm right or not, like you could gain belief that this is a true fact like the magic of like the cryptographic structures of zero knowledge proofs is like you're able to actually like 
encode that into a thing where like, we don't have to do this interactive version. It's like, I can create like a mathematical construct that gives you like the proof that I know this information without me revealing it directly to you. Um, and so like, this actually has a couple interesting properties. The way that we use zero knowledge proofs is in two forms. Like one is to say, how do I know that this is like the unique construction of data? So like, if I'm handing data to someone else, I want to know that that person's actually storing the data. I don't want them to just say like, I've taken your data, I will also take your payment and then I will throw away your data and you'll be screwed. Uh, in this case, like they're creating a zero knowledge proof and they're putting that on chain. And so I can verify uh, with that proof that your yeah. data is actually being stored. And then there's other zero knowledge proofs that are used to say your data on a consistent basis is still being stored and they're able. And so this gets into like very deep cryptographic things. But I think the magic of zero knowledge proofs is they can actually do many things, including like compression of information. That's sort of what's happening with like rollups with like uh, different uh, like on L2s and Ethereum. What what it's are also... rollups? I'm here ZK rollups and things like that. Yeah. Um, what are they? So think about uh, inside of Ethereum, like uh, there's a fixed block, right? And like inside the block, people are putting information. And when it's very like congested and there's many people trying to do things, it gets quite expensive. And so the idea of a rollup is to say, what if instead I could put some information on chain that like represents many information or like many pieces of information together. And so if you take a look at something like StarkNet, uh, the way that this works is basically like on one of their rollups, people are like, so like DYDX will like submit many transactions. Oh, yeah. There will be like a prover that will then batch these and create like a zero knowledge proof that like validly shows that everything in that transaction is correct. And then it will put that proof on chain. So it won't actually store on Ethereum like everything that happened. Oh, what it I will see do what you're saying. Is like, yeah. And so the cool thing is it has two really interesting properties. So one, in this case, the zero knowledge proof is acting as a compression, a form of compression. Instead of putting like 10,000 transactions, it's putting only one transaction and it's putting like the proof that is that transaction. Uh, what that means is the gas fee for that one zero knowledge proof is now amortized across all of the 10,000 transactions that would have happened. Um, and so in that way, like you actually get this really interesting property where as more and more people security. adopt these things and it gets cheaper and cheaper. Um, the other thing that's interesting, which is more like in the Zcash realm is like you can use zero knowledge proofs to actually like hide information. So if you want to like anonymously be able to like send money around, do these like shielded transactions, you don't actually have to reveal the actual transactions on chain. You can do cool zero knowledge stuff to actually like keep that information hidden, uh, which is like useful from like a privacy perspective. That's such a beautiful thing that can be used for the negative or the positive, but we need to create the technology to allow for it at the same time because open societies are really where the world needs to go. We're learning now that if we have these closed societies that kind of some governments are pushing us towards right now, it's just leading to negativity. And and what we didn't foresee that it's not just negativity and hostility towards the governments, it's towards other people. Like my mother-in-law loves playing tennis but now she doesn't want to play tennis with some people anymore because all they want to do is talk about certain things all the time. And it's not that it's just sometimes there's there's I feel like in the world today, there's so hostility. There's so much hostility, especially when it comes to defending our positions, because it used to be that who cares if we were wrong. But now the world has made us believe that if we're wrong, we could potentially kill someone. So now everything is coming down to this like, oh, you're it's just I don't want to go, go into the crate, but we need to like get back to the you know 
five or six years ago when the world was moving to an open society when you can hop on a plane and go anywhere and it doesn't matter where you're going, who the people were, what they look like, what they care. Oh, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter, I, think- I should say. And kind of, um, it's scaring me. So building, thank you for building out the technology that's bringing us back to an open society. Yeah, I mean, like the way I think about this and like part of the reason then I get really excited about Web3 is like, so there's many things that I think are really interesting and like cool ideas, but like fundamentally, if you sort of like zoom back out, a lot of what these technologies are enforcing is just like, how do you build like civil liberties at like the technical layer? And like, when you start thinking of it at like the technical layer, it means also that these are like democratized to anyone, regardless of if you won the geographic lottery or whatever else, this is stuff that like everyone has access to so long as they have an internet connection. And I think it also forces the conversation about where places where we implicitly are having trust and implicitly having centralization. I think like the conversation about centralization, like that's sort of how we've gotten into this position where like big tech is pulled up in front of Congress every like two weeks, it feels like. I wrote that down. Congress gets really mad. And like, (laughs) I think for a lot of it, it's just like we're having this conversation, but everyone's like aware of like, what are things that they like, don't like about the system. And very few people have like productive ideas about like, how do we improve the system? And I think web three is like one of the very few places where there's like actually an interesting answer that tries to like recognize that maybe the best answer is like, we have to like recognize that anytime there's a position of power, we end up having these like really awkward questions about like, okay, so who is the decider? How do we make sure that the decider is like not doing things that are bad? Regulate the regulators, yeah. This is like, I don't think this means in democratic societies that we won't actually have, like, we still will need laws and rules. And things no, like we, that. we talk, we talk about like putting the justice system on chain. So it's like, and it'll make a more, a better, fairer, more equal system for, for dispensing of justice. It's my belief. Well, at I, least. I think it's like also just a little bit of like a check on power where I think it's like, it means in democratic societies, people will willingly want to comply with the law. Like if you have like, good rules, it will make sense. Like people don't want yeah. to distribute like bad bits, like like CSAM or whatever else. Like, however, it also means that then like the onus is like, if you have a situation where someone wants to ban like Wikipedia, it's really now down to like the user's choice of like, do they agree with that choice or not? And I think like fundamentally re-architecting so people have the ability to make these choices is like really important. Um, mostly because I think in Western nations, a lot of us have like sort of like the ability to make these choices and sort of like think through how we want to do these things. Uh, that's not necessarily like a right that's enshrined everywhere. Um, and so, yeah, I like, I, I don't see these things as being in conflict. I think it also just like highlights if you're thinking about like the internet as this like fundamental technology, like it will become really, really difficult to like actually enable any individual nation to say like, here are the rules for like how the web should be like shaped. Yeah. Like here are it the rules the like, ability. through whatever else is. And so, like, the only answer is, like, you have to do this. From, and I, I think, like, the best way of sort of, like, conceptualizing that is, like, Facebook happens to be, like, an American company. And I'm yeah. sure every other country has their own concerns about, like, how do we make sure that, like, the U.S. is not, like, influencing whatever in, like, our own individual nations. I know India, as an example, like, they have requirements about, like, whatever fact checkers and True. whoever, like, must be co-located in India. And like this just highlights like the internet itself is like technology that has to be like more neutral. And then like you can build everything that you want on top for like managing locally and giving power back to like individuals as well as like different geographies. And I think this is kind of like the important part. 
you taught us so much today and thank you again for for continuing to work on open societies and filecoin and protocol labs ipfs everything you guys are working on thanks jonathan victor thank you so much for taking the time and coming on untold stories i really appreciate it yeah of course